Join me for a moment in thinking about your favorite landscape. I don't know about you, but there's just something about the mountains. When I look at the mountains, something wells up within me. When I'm in the mountains, something comes alive in me. I just love the mountains. And perhaps my favorite mountain range, if you would have such a thing, is the Tetons. There's just something about the Tetons. They are so majestic and sublime. And any time of day, from any angle, any season, they just elicit something in me that's powerful. And I love the mountains. I don't know about you. Maybe it's farmland. Maybe it's the prairies. Maybe it's rolling hills or a mountain lake. I think those are all wonderful. I just prefer mountains in the background, right? In fact, it's probably the only thing that comes close would be the ocean. And there's something just vast and majestic about the ocean or one of the great lakes. Anytime you can't see across the water, there's something powerful about that. But I love being by water of any kind, even if it's a smaller body of water. And I love seeing the sunshine sparkling on the water when there's a gentle breeze or the moon reflected in a still lake. There's just something about these settings that draw me close to God. I love to hike, to bike, to sit, to drive, to camp. In the mountains, there's just something about the mountains. And we have the Black Hills within a half day's drive, and I'm grateful for that. But what about you? Where do you feel close to God? Where do you feel more aware of his presence? We're in a series titled, Can You Hear Me Now? And we've been asking this question or exploring this question as if not only is God asking us, but as if we're asking God. Can you hear me now, God? Or God saying, can you hear me, my child? And so these first two weeks of this series, we've been focusing on on this question. And we've come to some conclusions first that God is always speaking. And this is good news. He's always speaking. And last week, we realized that he is always listening as well. And that it is the communion with God, the common union that we find through prayer, through worship, through God speaking to us through his word, through us speaking to God through prayer and through fellowship and and through the various ways that we have to express ourselves to God and to hear from God. It is that communion that is the goal of prayer. And so while it is good news that God is always speaking and it is good news that God is always listening, there's some bad news. The bad news is we are not always listening nor do we always come to God with our prayers or pour out our hearts to him to experience that communion with him. And so before we move on, I just want to celebrate last Sunday. If you were with us, we tried something new. We did Generation Sunday where we brought all of the generations of Linwood, of our family of families together in the sanctuary. And we had a wonderful celebration. And one of the highlights for me was when I left out into the lobby, there was a whole line of, of little ones that had taken notes And Pastor Sandy had told him, if you'd bring your notes to me, I want to see them and I'll have a little something for you. But man, they really went above and beyond. Several of the kids came up and they showed me their notes and they were so proud that they had paid attention, that they had listened to the sermon and that they had been a part of big church. But my favorite thing of all 
was that there were a number of times where a kid got out of his seat, moved around, (laughs) or made a little extra noise. And I could see that from where I was standing, and I saw smiles, and I saw those neighbors helping steer that child back. No scowls, no scoffs, no frowns. And I just celebrate that we really are a family of families that values leaving a legacy of faith. And something like Generation Sunday is a small thing that really holds up those values. And so we'll do this again. We're planning to do that on fifth Sunday. So whenever there's a fifth Sunday in a month, that's a great time for a Generation Sunday to come together as one family of families. But today, we are focused on increasing our reception with God, increasing our reception. We started with a little bit of a cell phone analogy, right? And I walked out on stage and asked, can you hear me now? Like the old Verizon commercial. And today we're focused on increasing our reception. And what do we know about cell reception? It's usually best on the mountaintops, isn't it? That's why he started talking about mountains. It all makes sense now. And it's usually worse in the valleys, isn't it? And so we're going to take a case study on prayer. And as we do so, we're going to focus on one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. This is somebody who who comes to mind when you think of a great prophet in the Old Testament, perhaps the greatest of all. And we see him right in the intersection of some of his highest highs and his lowest lows. And I don't know about you, but I draw some strength and some encouragement to know that one of the greatest prophets in the entire Old Testament struggled with things like fear and doubt, struggled with prayer, and struggled with discouragement. So if you have one of our pew Bibles, they're in the seats in front of you. You can open up to page 559. For those of you that bring your own Bible, which I think is great, or you're joining us online and you have a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at the majority of this chapter and move through it. Because it comes in narrative form, we'll look at about one paragraph at a time and draw some lessons from that and make some observations about that. Now, the context of 1 Kings chapter 19 is that... Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, has just had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, who was kind of, Baal was the leading idol or false god of the day. And so many of the people of Israel, many of God's chosen people had started worshiping Baal instead of worshiping God. And Elijah, as God's prophet, has had enough of it. And so he organizes this showdown And man, God really shows up. And Elijah ends up calling fire from heaven down onto the mountain. And it burns up the sacrifice. And it's this tremendous show of God's presence and his power. And then Elijah prays that a drought that had been going for three and a half years would end. And a downpour comes immediately. And so these visible, tangible, powerful representations of God and his activity in the world. And that he is listening to Elijah is the immediate backdrop for what we read in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll read the first uh, five verses here. Now Ahab, who was the king, an evil king, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. 
Now Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been that discouraged that you just wished God could take you now? And what's interesting is that this comes immediately on the heels of a tremendous display of God's power, of his presence with Elijah. And yet, within 48 hours... This is where Elijah finds himself. This is the condition that he finds himself in. And so while I said earlier that reception is better on the mountaintops, it's lower in the valleys. And maybe you've heard this language before that there are mountaintop experiences with God. Have you ever had one of those? Have you had multiple mountaintop experiences with God? Maybe through worship. Maybe through some great success in ministry. Maybe through just a sense of his presence and you're just basking in the presence of God and you, you walk away from saying that was a mountaintop experience with God. I believe we need those experiences. I know I need those experiences in my life, those times when God feels especially close and especially near, when everything is up and to the right and it feels like nothing can go wrong. But we cannot rely on them. Yes, we need those boosts, we need those mile markers in our faith, but we can't rely on the emotion that comes with those. We can't rely on those mountaintop experiences because the valleys are coming. They are promised to us. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the difficulties, and there is a glorious eternity that awaits us. So we must remember in the valley what we heard on the mountaintop. We must remember that the God of the mountaintop is the God of the valley. And so Elijah, in this situation, he has just had a mountaintop experience with God. Literally, spiritually, figuratively, every other Lee that you can add to that. He has just had like the, one of the most spectacular mountaintop experiences in all of Scripture. And now he's filled with fear and despair. And this, as I was reading and studying this, it reminded me of a truth, of a principle that I have heard a number of different places in a number of different ways, and that's this, that expectations kill relationships. Expectations kill relationships. Why do I say that here? Because I have no doubt that Elijah had certain expectations about what the day after Mount Carmel was going to be like. And I guarantee it did not include a death threat. He thought that this display of God's power was probably going to bring about repentance and revival and that Ahab and Jezebel would finally turn from their sinful ways and follow God because it's so clear that God is with us, God is for us, the drought has ended. He is here. Baal is not. And yet his expectations are turned on their head. And his life is threatened by some very powerful people. And so I tell you, expectations kill 
relationships. Elijah had expectations of God. And when they were not met, his relationship with God plummeted and he plummeted into fear and despair. Expectations kill relationships. I've heard that from Ann Voskamp in her book, 10,000 Gifts. I've heard that from preachers. I've heard that from speakers, that expectations will kill your relationships. And so there's a little teachable moment here because if you want to kill your marriage, just load down your spouse with expectations. Never communicate them. And always pay more attention to when they don't meet the expectations than when they do meet the expectations, and you can kill that relationship. If you want to kill the relationship that you have with one of your children, adult or small, just load down that relationship with a lot of expectations and pay more attention to when they aren't met than when they are, and you can kill that relationship. If you want to kill your relationship with God or with anybody else, just load it down with expectations and pay more attention to when the expectations are not met than when they are. And you can kill that relationship. So be careful with your expectations. And the the road back is to release the expectations. When you realize that you're frustrated because of unmet expectations, and that's what frustration is. It's unmet expectations. When you realize that you're frustrated by unmet expectations, you release your expectations. And you reestablish relationship. And you strengthen that relationship. That's what Elijah needs to do here. And it's what we need to do whenever we recognize that a relationship has been strained by unmet expectations. Now, Elijah points out something or says something very interesting here that I believe points us to a reality that he's facing. The thing that he says is, I am no better than my ancestors. Did you catch that in his, his little take my life prayer? I am no better than my ancestors. Now, this is Elijah. I introduced him to you as one of the most highly regarded prophets of the Old Testament. This is Elijah, who visits Jesus along with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is Elijah, who John the Baptist is being compared to in the time that Jesus is introduced onto the scene. This is Elijah, who just called down fire from heaven, who prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Who has that on your resume? Cut it out. We could use some rain, right? And then just as quickly, he prayed that it would rain, and it did, just like that. This is Elijah. He's far better than many of his ancestors, but he doesn't see that. And this is proof of two things. First, we can't trust our feelings, especially in the valley. You can't trust your feelings in the valley. You need to feel your feelings. You need to acknowledge your feelings. You need to take your feelings to God and say, God, which of these feelings are drawing me closer to you and which of these feelings are pushing me away from you? Because there's another reality that Elijah is facing here. And that is a spiritual attack. There is a spiritual attack taking place in Elijah's life. There's no doubt in my mind that he is under attack. And while the good news is that God is always listening and God is always speaking, the bad news is that he has an enemy who is always at work. God has an enemy who has set himself up against everything that God stands for. And his enemy is always at work. And we take a big step forward when we learn to recognize this. When we learn to understand that that God has an enemy that is at work and is trying to twist things and distort things. Who has come to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. That's Satan's ballgame. And so when we are listening to the wrong voices, if we discount that there is an enemy that is always working against us, we're in trouble. 
And as we learn to discern that, to recognize the voice of the enemy that's pushing us away, and for a long time I resisted this. And I thought it sounded a little too Pentecostal or a little too charismatic or a little too something. And then I started to recognize that there was a spiritual attack, that I did have an enemy that wanted to take me down, wanted to take my marriage down, wanted to take my kids down. And I learned that I have the power as a believer, as a son of God, to speak to that enemy and to say, Satan, you have no power here. Go back to hell where you belong. You do not belong here in my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, I send you away. Amen. Amen. And you can do this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have this power. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So don't be passive. Don't zone out. Don't veg out. Don't lull yourself to sleep and allow the enemy to have the day. One of my favorite scenes in a Christian movie comes in the movie War Room. Maybe you've seen the movie War Room, and there's this turning point in this movie where one of the main characters, she decides she's had enough of Satan attacking her family, and she lets him have it. And she walks through her house, and she casts him out in the name of Jesus. It's a turning point in the movie, and it's a turning point in her life. And that's what I think Elijah needs to recognize here, and he doesn't. He just falls asleep. That's what we're told at the beginning of of verse 5. He falls asleep, and of course he does. He's exhausted. He's been on the run for 48 hours. He just had this spiritual climax moment where, where he's exhausted from that. He's depressed. He's alone. And that's where we pick up the story in verse second half of verse 5. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals. Can you smell it? Oh, I love the smell of baking bread. And a jar of water in the desert. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So here's the the setting. He's exhausted. He's depressed. He's completely alone. And he falls asleep and God shows up and brings him a happy meal. Brings him bread, freshly baked bread. And you know there's a difference, right? Like freshly baked bread, does it get much better than that? And water in the desert, he gives him what he needs. And I think there's kind of a side point here. Don't underestimate the physical and emotional elements of your spiritual life. Yes, you have a spiritual life and it interacts with God in the spiritual realm, but it is all tied up and entangled with our physical and emotional lives and beings. And so when I was involved in a recovery ministry in Casper, Wyoming, there was an acronym that they would give to those that were in recovery to just beware, be careful, HALT was the acronym, and it was like, stop, pay attention when one of these four conditions or multiple conditions exists. When you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, stop. You're vulnerable. If you're an addict, you're vulnerable of going back to your addiction in those moments. And so you should call your sponsor. You should get community. You should 
eat some food. (laughs) You should deal with your emotions. You should find people and spend time with them. You should get rest. That's essentially what it was saying. Be careful and halt whenever you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Well, Elijah's all four, right? And so God shows up and gives him exactly what he needs in the moment. He gives him food. He, in just a moment, gives him an outlet for his anger. He visits him because he's lonely. And he lets him rest because he's tired. In Grief Share, there's a a four-part acronym that they're encouraging people who are grieving to pay attention to. And it's the the acronym DEER, D-E-E-R, DEER. Drink water. (laughs) Don't drink anything else. Drink water. Eat good, nutritious food. Exercise and rest. Make sure you're doing those things. Make sure you're drinking water. And I can say with confidence, unless you're drinking so much water that people say, why do you drink so much water? You should probably be drinking more water. You should go get a bottle of water and drink it on your way home when you finish this message because we all need more water. We need to eat nutritious food. So he gives him water and bread. We need exercise. He's about to go for a walk. (laughs) We need rest. God lets him rest. And I find it interesting. God doesn't really talk with him until he's rested and eaten. He's had some exercise and he's rested some more. And so he goes to Mount Horeb, which is also known in the Old Testament as Mount Sinai, a very significant place in the history of Israel. Mount Sinai is where Moses received the law from God. The, this is the mountain that was on fire, essentially. And so he goes there, and I think there's significance in the 40 days journey as well. Maybe one day for each of Israel's 40 years in the desert. Maybe it's a, a parallel with Noah and his 40 days and 40 nights of rain on the ark. Maybe it's significant with Moses and the 40 days he spent on top of that mountain in the presence of God. Or perhaps it's the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert himself before his temptation. Maybe it's a little bit of all three. We do know that 40 is a very significant number in Scripture. And so with that, let's pick up the story and really the heart of the story here in verses 9 through 14. There, Elijah went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Maybe he said it like that. I don't know. I'm speculating. It's how I hear it. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain by the presence of In the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. You think the wind is bad in Sioux Falls sometimes? Like it's coming. Have you read the forecast? I haven't seen rock shattering. This is really something, right? But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard that, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. He was terrified that if he saw God, he would die. That was a common belief at this time. So he covers his face. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I think he said it exactly the same way. I don't think he got it yet. 
He didn't realize he was standing in the presence of God, that God had come to him. And so if reception is best on the mountaintops and it's worse in valleys, it's worst in a cave. And yet, God comes to him in a cave. God comes to him in a cave. God visits with him in a cave. God asks him a penetrating question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, time out. I've said this before. I'll say it again. When God asks a question, it's not because he needs to know the answer. He knows everything. So when God asks a question twice, it's not for him either time. Now, Elijah unloads twice. It's very clear that God is interrupting Elijah's pity party here. Like he's just really mad. And he unloads on God. And then he gets to see God's glory. And then he gets asked the question again. And he unloads again. But God doesn't really engage that either time, does he? God doesn't engage what Elijah has said. The first time he sends him out and reveals his glory to him. And I love this line from Warren Wiersbe in one of his commentaries. He said, all Elijah needed to get renewed for service was a fresh vision of the power and glory of God. And so God gives him that. He gives him a fresh vision of the power and glory of God. He sends wind, earthquake, and fire, but we're told he's not in any of those things. In fact, Warren Wiersbe points out that in this setting, God is saying to Elijah, you called fire from heaven, you had the prophets of Baal slain, you prayed down a terrific rainstorm, but now you feel like a failure. You must realize that I don't usually work in a manner that's loud, impressive, or dramatic. My still, small voice brings the word to the listening ear and heart. Yes, there's a time and a place for the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. But most of the time, I speak to people in tones of gentle love and quiet persuasion. I think it's the same for us. Nine times out of ten. So we must learn to look and listen for the still, small voice of God, we must learn to look not for the spectacular, but for the gentle whisper that comes to us in the practices of the presence of God, that comes to us in our daily time in his word and in scripture and in journals and on prayer walks, that it's in the still small voice that God speaks to us more than any other. Yes, he breaks through in powerful ways. Yes, he blesses us with mountaintop experiences. But if we do not learn to move beyond those into a daily conversational relationship with God that is available to us any moment of every day, then we are limiting ourselves from God's presence. We must learn to release our expectations, be quiet, and open our ears and our hearts to hear and to receive. And so this leads us to our bottom line today that good reception requires proximity and availability. It requires proximity, nearness. We need to be close to God. We need to have rhythms in our lives that keep us close to God. Holy habits might be a series coming soon to a church near you. We need those. That was one of the focuses of a life without lack is that you don't go looking for it when you realize you don't have it. You build it into your life day after day in the presence of God because you're hungry for it. You want it. You desire it. 
Good reception requires proximity and availability. Don't run like Elijah did. Don't avoid God like Elijah did. In fact, Paul David Tripp, in his wonderful devotional titled New Morning Mercies, he wrote this, and I I just love this quote. He said, true prayer happens at the intersection of surrender and celebration. As you put God in his proper place and celebrate your place as his child, prayer becomes a tool God uses to free you from your bondage to you. Now that's grace. Look at Elijah's response to God. Do you see much surrender? Do you see much celebration? Elijah was in bondage to himself. He was in bondage to his fear. And God comes to him to break the bonds, comes to him to release him. And so we get to see how the story ends in verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. God's response to Elijah now is go back. Go back. Go back to where you were called. Go back to the work that you have to do. Go back. And I see two things in that going back. I see repenting. Repent, Elijah, from your running. Repent, Elijah, from your unavailability to me. Repent from your complaining and re-engage. Repent and re-engage. When he tells him to go back, he says, you've got work to do. You have a place. You have a mission field. I'm sending you back to that mission field. And he sends him on this mission again, and he says, go and go now. And I think he's saying, move. Move in the direction that you know you are called to. Move. Because movement leads to momentum. When you take one step... You can take another. When you take two steps, you can take two more. When you take four steps, you can take four more. And now you're moving. Now you're moving with God to the place that God has shown you. And I love this quote from Wearsby again. That's the last one I'll share from him, but it's really, really good. And it's very comforting and encouraging to us. He says, no matter how much or how often his servants fail him, God is never at a loss to know what to do. And we see that in this passage right here. We see Elijah complaining about the past and the current generation. And God's like not even interested in that. He's sending Elijah to anoint and commission the next generation. It's a powerful principle. And when we can get God's perspective on our problems, our problems get a lot smaller and our God gets a lot bigger. But when we focus on our problems, our problems get bigger and our God gets smaller. So we've got to take our eyes off of our problems and get them up on God. And ask him, where are you sending me? What do you want me to do in this moment? And that's what God does for Elijah here. And he sends him to equip the next generation. And he promises him, there's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're the last one. You're not even close. There's 7,000. And this was a powerful, powerful point from the, the 
Life Verse series over the summer when I was on sabbatical. I listened to all those messages. There were some great messages. You guys heard from some great preachers, both on our staff and those that we brought in. And there was one at the end of June, June 26th, Pastor Jake Thurston from our church that we're helping to plant down in Vermilion, Resilient Church. He spoke on this passage. He spoke on this commissioning right here. And he made this point so powerfully and so beautifully. So if you're feeling a little bit of conviction right now about complaining more than working towards the next generation, then maybe you want to go back and listen to that message because it's a really good message. If you're feeling intrigued by that concept and how you might be a part of strengthening and encouraging and equipping the next generation, that would be a great message for you to go listen to. But we kind of put a bow on all of this and as our worship team starts to make their way back up here, I want to tell you the reality here is that this is not a case study on Elijah. This is a case study on God. I tricked you. We've been talking about Elijah, but the case study has been on God. Elijah is not the example that you necessarily want to follow in this story, as great as he was. God seeks Elijah out, even in a cave. God is patient with Elijah, with his complaining, with his whining. God gives Elijah what he needs. He gives him food. He gives him water. He gives him mission to be engaged in. This is a case study on God and the God that is always speaking, the God that is always listening, the God that really wants to hear from us and really wants to speak to us. Whether we are on the mountaintop or we are in the valley or we have found a cave in the valley, the same God longs to speak with us. Remember, good reception requires proximity and availability. Aren't you thankful that God is always near? And he is always available. The reception is always perfect coming from God. It only gets shaky when we remove ourselves or make ourselves unavailable to him. He's waiting. Come back to him. Come back to him. He's always close. He's always seeking us out. He's always available. Now, I'd hoped that I might have time to share Psalm 121 with you. I can see that I do not. So, you have an assignment this afternoon. Before you sit down and get comfortable with a football game or you do something else slightly less spiritual than this moment right now, read Psalm 121. Read it again. Read it in another, lang- another translation. This beautiful psalm opens with the words, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the earth, the one who is higher than the mountains. So I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to get out a piece of paper and begin to write what you feel, what you are thinking. Write what comes to mind as you reflect on that psalm. Spend some time with God in this way. I also want to encourage you to be engaging prayer in your life with the mountaintop experiences like our 24 hours of prayer that's coming up this Friday from 5 p.m. Friday to 5 p.m. Saturday. There's a 24 hours period where you can come and pray in this sanctuary and you can spend time with God and I pray that it will be a mountaintop experience for you in your prayer life. You can sign up today and grab a door information card. You can sign up online. And we can send you resources for you to participate wherever you are. But this is an opportunity in five days to have a mountaintop experience with God. You can also begin to build regular rhythms into your life. We have our Take 10 at 1010. 
that I mentioned last week. I didn't even make it down there this week. There were so many new people in the first service and new people in the second service that I didn't get out of the lobby. It was awesome. It was exciting. God's doing something cool. Would you join us in praying for it? Praying that we make the most of it? Praying that that something happens here that is beyond anything any of us could ever do? That's our take 10 at 1010. 10 minutes at 1010 a.m., right between the two services. I'd love to see that have to move into the youth room because so many people are coming. I think that's possible. And I also want to encourage you to to create some daily rhythms. I talked about the power of rhythms. Create some daily rhythms if you haven't already done this. I encourage this in the Life Without Lack. Some people even shared with me. I started an hourly reminder during my waking hours that just brings me back to God, brings his presence back into my life, brings me back to prayer. You could do something similar. You could set hourly reminders. You could set reminders at pivotal times in your day when you know you might be likely to be upset or be frustrated or feel alone to remind you that God is with you. You could focus on scriptures that speak to you in those moments. I want to encourage you to do that again. We have technology now that is a constant source of distraction, but it's also something that we can leverage and teach to distract us with the right things, to distract us with God, to get our focus on him again, to bring us back to him, to bring us back to his word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you are so faithful, that you are always close to us, that you are always available to us, that you ask us to prioritize being close with you and being available to you. We thank you that Jesus has opened a way for us to be with you and to be in your presence. We celebrated that with communion and we give you thanks again now that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are with us and that you are for us. For the one that is listening to this, either live in the moment in this room or online or at some point in the future, that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that doesn't know the tremendous power of the presence of God that is available to them every moment of every day, Lord, I pray that your spirit would break through, that you would help them to see you that you love them so much that Jesus died that they could be in a relationship with you that they could grow in that relationship that they could experience freedom and peace through that relationship may they confess their sins may they invite your forgiveness and may they choose to follow you all the days of their lives it's in Jesus name we pray amen